0: What we face is not so much more and more death because the virus run around rampant, but they start to tip over, fill up the hospitals. We're not built to handle a giant pandemic over and over and over again in our ICUs and in the ERs. So the real problem there is you want to get vaccinated so that you don't fill the hospitals,
1: That was dr arthur kaplan professor of bioethics at new york university's langone medical center sharing his thoughts on the coronavirus future mutations and the ethics of vaccine mandates welcome to capital considerations the market and economic podcast that's fully invested in your success i'm your host tony roth chief investment officer of wilmington trust i'm sure many of you like me are returning from a nice summer someplace maybe even a vacation I'm preparing to head back to real life, whether that be work or school. But with the reemergence of the widespread coronavirus driven by the Delta variant, and on top of that, the recent reports that question the longer term efficacy of the vaccines, it's somewhat challenging to picture what this return to so called real life might really look like. What does a future with COVID 19 hold? And how will this unfolding of vaccines and their questionable efficacy over the longer term perhaps? affect how we live with this disease, and affect policy that have been adopted to fight it both over the short and long term. To help us answer these questions and more, we're pleased to welcome Dr. Arthur Kaplan. Dr. Kaplan is the Drs. William F. and Virginia Conley Mitney Professor and founding of Head of the Division of Medical Ethics at NYU School of Medicine. Prior to coming to NYU, Professor Kaplan created the Center for Bioethics and the Department of Medical Ethics at the University of Pennsylvania. He advises major medical institutions across the country and internationally, including the US Department of Defense and the World Health Organization. Dr. Kaplan has numerous academic papers and books, including a recent one, Vaccination Ethics and Policy. Professor, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you, Tony, and please call me Art. Art, thank you for being here. We're really excited for this conversation. Before we begin, I want to stress that Wilmington Trust is nonpartisan. We take no position one way or the other. We had so many conversations around COVID for our audience, our listeners last year, and we've sort of taken our foot off that particular pedal this year because the space is so saturated. But Art, it just feels like we're coming into the, the fall here, Labor Day weekend, and it really seemed like it was the right time to have a conversation, and one of the reasons is that It really feels like maybe there's a light at the end of the tunnel because there doesn't seem to be anything behind Delta. I mean, listen, we've had hundreds of millions of people now that have actually had COVID. The virus has had a chance to give us its best shot, to morph, to mutate, to do all these crazy things that it does. It's given us the Delta variant. I've read enough to know that these viruses tend to become more transmissible, but not necessarily more lethal. And so it sort of feels like with the number of people that have been vaccinated, over 50% now of our total population fully vaccinated, and and we're gonna be having more people added to those roles. And then on top of that, folks that have had the virus, we gotta be close to herd immunity. And if we don't get another variant that's more lethal, maybe we're gonna be out of this thing soon. So where do you see us right now in terms of the permanence or the durability of this public health crisis?
0: Well, I think, as is sometimes said, you're fishing for compliments in this case, fishing for some good news. And I think you're partly right. We have had a lot of natural infection, building natural immunity. Fair number of people are vaccinated and those are all to the good, but not quite there yet. Gotta get more vaccination done. We're still a distance, even with the people who've caught the disease from herd immunity, so I worry about that. Good news, a lot of the older, elderly Americans have been vaccinated, so the death rates should really be far less, even if the virus spreads. I'll say this about mutations. If you look at evolution in viruses, viruses always try to become more transmissible but it's never in their interest to become more lethal because they kill their hosts. So in terms of transmission, we may still see more because remember, the bad news is a lot of the world not infected. A lot of the world not vaccinated. There's still enough, if you will, human population out there that I think you can cook up a few more strains uh, potentially. You're a guy who deals with the risk all the time. I bet that things will be better, but I want to be cautious.
1: What about the ability of these new strains to circumvent the vaccines? So in other words, we're seeing that the new strain is more transmissible and can actually cause symptomatic illness more readily, that is the Delta variant, but not severe illness. Do you think that to the extent we get new strains that, that again, may be more transmissible, but unlikely to cause more severe illness or death than what we've seen so far? I
0: think there I'll go with that. I think we're likely to see, if you're betting, easier transmission, more mutations that make it easier for the virus to spread. Viruses love those kinds of mutations. But I do think it's harder for them, for the reason I just said, don't like to kill all your hosts, to evolve, uh, if you will, more lethal, nastier strains. That can happen but they're really rare in viral evolution. So yeah, I do think we may see more contagion, more cases of people with moderate illness, more cases of people we could treat in the hospital and get them better, not just have them die because their lungs really fail or the virus just shuts down their entire uh, organic function. So yes, I think we may have gotten as bad as it's gonna get on lethality, Mm, still could get more on transmissibility.
1: So it really does sound like the key to our getting on top of the situation are vaccines on an individual level. We each want to be vaccinated because we don't want to die and get seriously ill. And we've just sort of established, we'll talk more about the permanence or the durability of the vaccines. Can you talk to us about why the vaccines are so important in terms of getting this thing under control as a community of people globally?
0: Well, look. There's still a lot of people unvaccinated around the world. If transmissible, high transmission viruses get into those populations, they really could get wracked with uh, a lot of sick people and they don't have the hospitals, antibodies, experts to do much about it. So their death tolls would be worse, not because the virus is worse, but they don't have the safety net healthcare system. So that, that's a risk. Here, or in the developed world, Japan, Europe, what we face is not so much more and more death because the viruses run around rampant, but they start to tip over, fill up the hospitals. So even as we learn how to do better in combating the virus, whether it's giving you some antibodies or operating uh, ventilation in the right way so we actually get your lungs time to recover, we're not built to handle a giant pandemic over and over and over again in our ICUs and in the ERs. So the real problem there is you wanna get vaccinated so that you don't fill the hospitals, not so much with people who are doomed to die. I think we could do better, but they may be there two weeks, three weeks, four weeks. Meanwhile, you have a heart attack, you have cancer, you have ALS, you can't get in there. So that's where the community-mindedness really starts to show.
1: So there's really three levels that I can think of right off the top of my head, and I'm sure there are more reasons to get vaccinated that even extend beyond our own personal survivability. One is to be able to have a health system that's actually available uh, for other types of needs. Second is the need to have a world where at some point the virus doesn't have as many hosts to create new strains. And then lastly, which is more in my area, we clearly see very significant supply chain disruption that's leading to inflation and economic risk. And to the extent that we continue to see periodic and rolling shutdowns in supply chains around the world, that is building as a risk, both on the inflation side uh, and the consumption side. One of the things, Art, that I have found to be really interesting is that in my short life of 54 years, I would say this is one of the greatest crises the world has faced. And it would seem that hesitancy is probably lower in many places around the world, most of the places around the world, than it is, than it is here. And given the nature of that crisis, why wouldn't we say, hey, Pfizer and Moderna, this is really you know, your strike zone. Or why aren't we being pushed harder, frankly, by other countries around the world to give the recipe to everyone? And by the way, it's in our interest to do so. Absolutely. It's prudent. You know, I have a nephew He went out to buy a used
0: car. There aren't any. Parts are short on a lot of automobiles. Toyota, I saw, had just shut down production. So these economic reverberations of supply line disruption are serious. They cause problems too, by the way, mental health issues. Unemployment is never good for health, never. People lose health insurance. They don't go to the doctor. They try to ride out symptoms. It's never a good thing. So granting that problem, it does seem to me that what we ought to do is figure out ways to get more vaccine overseas. Sadly, I don't think it's by giving away the secret formula. I could give the secret formula to the Ivory Coast or to uh, Gambia and they got no factory and they have no skilled personnel. They don't even have refrigeration. I've got to give them the tools to make the stuff. So that really what Pfizer and Moderna should do, my recommendation is, Make some factories, make some infrastructure, if you will. So you're making a ton of money. Here's your responsibility: go build them factories, then give them the formula. Then they can make uh, vaccines, and that's not going to be fast. I think we got a year before that happens. But you need infrastructure
1: for vaccination: everything from electricity to roads to refrigeration. Does it have to be? Does it have to be made locally? If you look at the global vaccine manufacturing capability. Yeah. And I know that they're not all, they're, you know, they're not all the same, right? You can't make Coke in a Pepsi plant, perhaps, on day right. one, although you can probably make it a lot faster than if you wanted to build a new plant. But if you look at the global vaccine capability output, couldn't we, without having to create those new plants, couldn't we require these mRNA companies to license the vaccine to other manufacturers so that we could supply the world?
0: It's tough to make vaccines. You may remember, Tony... We've already had a shutdown in vaccine manufacturing here because of problems in a plant in Baltimore. In Baltimore. Yeah. I've studied vaccines a long time. I've yet to think of one that didn't have a shutdown because it's so tricky to make the darn things. Whether it's the old school way of making them on chicken eggs and viruses or the new school DNA way, it's not easy. You've got to make, you know, literally billions of products safe, identical. It's hard. Plus… You need the syringes, you need other chemicals to stabilize the vaccines. It's not not so easy. That said, we could do more. I think South Korea, I think there are many countries out there that could manufacture, we could could swing their factories over and learn to do it. So I'd say it's a two-pronged plan that we need. And I don't know where the administration is on this, but let's try to incentivize, give the formula, Retool the factories in the you know relatively developed world. South Korea as an example, Vietnam can make vaccines. They've done it in the past. India has a capability. And then we got to build the infrastructure because even when you have them, in the history of vaccines, there are a lot of cases where we send somebody H1N1 flu vaccine or HPV vaccine. It hits the dock, it sits there. They got no road, no trucks, no refrigerators, nobody trained to give the vaccines. So you got to chase both. You need both prongs to really get this done. Is it going to get done in six months? No. Could we have a realistic plan to take care of it in two years?
1: Yeah. At least in the media in the U.S., maybe it's happening. and It's not something that the U.S. media focuses on. But we have a multinational organization under the, I believe, it's auspices of the U.N., the World Health, Health Organization. Are they equipped, both well, from a competency standpoint and a if you will, a political standpoint to do what's necessary to accomplish what you just described? No. Next and question. Why, why <laughs> is that? So why, why is that? Where's the deficit? And what so, What should we, the United States, be doing differently vis-a-vis yeah. the, the international institutions? Because, I mean, I again, like forget altruism. Let's just figure it's our own self-interest.
0: Sure. And both would work. Both would work. But WHO is basically a group of bureaucrats giving advice. They are all located around Geneva. They don't have a quick strike force. They don't have a deployment capability of anybody. They talk, and talk is important. I'm not knocking it, I do it myself sometimes, but you need boots on the ground, and they don't have that. They've never been budgeted for that. The other problem, and you know this, I'll remind you, when we started fishing around to find out where did that virus originate, and WHO set up a trip to China. China basically said, get lost. We're not going to give you access to anything. Beat it. WHO has no enforcement, no ability to compel. So they can say, do this, make factories, blah, 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 blah. Somebody's got to budget it. Somebody's got to put the boots on the ground. We're in a better position, as would be Europe, to do it. By the way, one other small problem. We assume it's the... uh, sort of uh, lower and middle income countries that have the biggest problems with vaccines. You know, Japan is like 30% vaccinated. They have an anti-vaccine culture that's been around there for, I don't know, 40 years. We haven't cracked it. It's a real problem. It's a very populous place. So what I'm saying is there are some countries near us, Mexico, Haiti, They need a lot of uh, uh, help in terms of not only getting the vaccine, but overcoming their cultural hesitancy to taking vaccine.
1: So when you look at the landscape, are we as a leader doing enough? We were obviously instrumental in developing these vaccines. Are we doing enough given our historic position in the world? Are we letting the world down? Are we letting ourselves down by being too focused inwardly? What are your thoughts around the more pressing question on using output for booster shots instead of diverting that to other countries that haven't had any inoculation yet? What's your scientific opinion on that?
0: Well, first, let's start with my bitter cynicism. Nobody ever failed to get elected in the U.S. for not providing lots of vaccine to Gambia. I mean, literally, domestic politics gets driven by a short-term I think distorted view of self-interest and we've said it here a couple of times. Even if you want to write off the world and say well if they die they die not my problem I'm in fortress America it's in your interest to go knock this vaccine out to drive it down to tolerability levels. I haven't seen that in the Biden administration I didn't see it with Trump. Um Trump pushed vaccines hard but he never pushed hard to get them overseas and I have to say I don't see Biden doing much of that either. So We've let down the world, but we're letting down our self-interest. I don't wanna have another podcast with you in a year where we're kicking around (laughs) the same issues about how come we haven't vaccinated Africa or Haiti or many other places to get this thing uh, down to a tolerable level. In terms of boosters, so here's my thinking. Many vaccines require three shots think, Tony, you're familiar with the HPV vaccine for cervical cancer.
1: Of course, yeah. That's
0: a three-shot vaccine spread out over, I believe, 18 months. Hepatitis B, three-shot vaccine. I'm old enough to have gotten a shingles vaccine, two shots. A lot of vaccines require three shots to get serious immunity. I don't think we're really talking about boosters. I think what we're talking about and what we found out with the uh, COVID vaccines is that they're three shots and they have to be spaced out more to get maximum big boost immunity. I was just looking at some papers actually this week that showed the bigger the interval between the first and the second shot, the more immunity you got. They just didn't test them that way, but we're learning that some European countries delayed the second shot and data is flying in that makes it clear that a third shot really kicks immunity. So, I'm not sure it's a booster. I think what the world is gonna need is three shots when it's at least uh, Moderna or Pfizer that they're dealing with. Do we have to do the three shots? Yeah, because that's what makes the thing work. And what do I mean by makes the thing work? Makes the immunity huge, so you can fight off all strains. And last, let's say two years, three years, You're not running around, you know, really having to uh, use boosters, uh, say every nine months.
1: I know that the data doesn't exist yet, but do you have a reason to believe that those of us that are vaccinated with the two regime protocol, that we need to get the third one before probably before a certain time where we'd have to start over again? If we don't get the third shot, let's say by 12 months or 18 months, do you have any sense of that? Or is that just, there's there's obviously no data on it?
0: Yeah, completely unknown. I know what you're asking. If we just stalled out, Said I'm gonna go get the third shot, let's say 12 to 18 months from now. Am I still good? It was because I was primed by the other two. We don't know. The whole uh, data set on these vaccines is probably the longest any human's been exposed to them when the trial started, not the emergency use authorization, probably clearing about 18 months right now. So don't know.
1: So again, getting into the the ethical space. There are a lot of commentators, some well-respected ones, that have really challenged the administration's approach to boosters at five months. Um, And again, we could call a booster a third shot. It does so seem that as an ethical matter, there is a real strong reason to think that not out of bounds ethically in wanting to provide a third shot to our population before perhaps we provide that material to other countries and, and other people's
0: so look, part of the answer to this is where you stand on our obligation to get the rest of the world under the vaccination umbrella. I stand in the position of saying right now, we don't have enough warehoused vaccine to make a huge dent, even if we gave it all away and didn't take a third shot in what the world needs. The world needs you know, many billions of vaccines, probably tens of billions of vaccines for the two-shot ones. Maybe with our surplus, we would be able to supply them with a billion. It's not going to make any difference. we got to figure out a path that is build infrastructure, build factories, convert them over, and share the formula.
1: Do you see any meaningful activity in that direction, any credible activity internationally, any movement being led within the U.S.? I just don't hear about it if it's happening.
0: I don't see it. Uh, You'll hear it from me. I whine about it periodically when I can, but no, I don't really see it yet. It's almost a fight again about, well, we ought to get rid of our surplus, which as I said, it isn't that big a surplus and it's not gonna make a big dent. So I find that discussion, which we hear about a lot, almost pointless. It's it's sort of, you know, let's assume we had 500 million surplus vaccines if we wanted to hold enough for a third shot and maybe enough for a fourth shot. Um, what difference does it make? 500 million is not going to, that's 250 million more vaccinated people not writing off those lives, but you know, it it isn't going to solve our international demand issue by any means.
1: So let's try to imagine what the future of our lives is going to look like. Those of us that are accustomed to being able to circulate freely, internationally, it would seem that the ergo from what you've described is that we are going to move from a period of pandemic to endemic where the Corona-19 virus will be with us for many years, many, many years, decade, maybe more, because it will, I think it'll take that long to get enough vaccination done at the rate at which the world is moving.
0: Right. By the and, way, I think where we're headed is make it tolerable, perhaps think the flu, Eliminate it like polio, smallpox. I don't know, that's going to be a long haul. By the way, getting rid of polio has been a 40 year project with full backing of the Gates Foundation and attempts to uh, roll out the infrastructure. We're still not done.
1: But the presence and existence of the coronavirus, both domestically and internationally, could be very consistent with, for those of us that are vaccinated, and receive a third shot um, with life as it was for the most part, including not masking prior to this pandemic. Would you agree with that?
0: I would, because I think you'll get pretty broadband immune resistance. You shouldn't wind up in the hospital off the third shot if it does everything that we're predicting. So I do think there will be a group of people who will be able to resume if they can prove three-shot vaccination, travel back to work. And if our businesses get tough and start to demand authentication, maybe back to the restaurant, back to the gym, back to the theater and so on, more of a normal life routine. My other complaint, we never put in a good authentication system for vaccination. You've got to have a hard to counterfeit vaccination authentication card or uh, credit card type thing People tell me, well, it might invade my privacy. And when they tell me this, they're usually telling me this by an email from their uh, cell phone, which has probably been tracked eight ways to Sunday about where they are and what they do with it.
1: Yeah, and I feel as though that that horse has left the barn. In other words, it's almost impossible at this point. I can tell you that I've had two shots of Moderna, but I don't even know if the drugstore could even verify that. And at this point, it's easier to create a false document for anybody than it is for my 15-year-old to create a fake ID.
0: Yeah, so look, uh, I do think it was absurd not to proceed with authentication. The fears I heard about it, basically we're trying to defend the rights of the unvaccinated, but maybe we could reinstitute it in two ways. One, for international travel, you are gonna see many countries demanding proof If you wanna go to Europe, you wanna go elsewhere, I think they're gonna say, show me your vaccination card. So maybe private enterprise could pick that up. Second, I think it may not be too late to do it with the third shot. So maybe there might be some fuzziness, if you will, about shots one and two, but you could do the third shot, get your titers measured, see if you really get a strong immune response, then certify. If I was an employer, I'd be saying, I expect everybody to get that third shot. And I expect, given international business requirements, that you're going to be able to prove that you did.
1: So if you manage money for a living, or which I do, and you'd spend a lot of time thinking about not just where to place the, the bets, if you will, where to deploy capital, but as importantly, even for deployment of capital domestically, what the overall global economic picture looks like. I would say that you're painting a picture that is gonna be fairly compromised for a long period of time as, as it relates to the ability of countries around the world that are probably not the US or probably Europe, but certainly Japan and, and many others to maintain the type of economic output that's predicated on people working in very close proximity with each other 365 days a year you're gonna see rolling waves of problems around the world for quite some time.
0: So I would say this, I think there's been a push. You can tell me if I'm wrong, you know the money side. I see it in our NYU hospitals, just in time supply. I don't think you can rely on that anymore given these interruptions that are out there, raw materials stalling, people not being able to store, deliver quickly as outbreaks roll in different parts of the world, even for raw materials. So it may be less efficient, but I think that that would be a principle of business that I'd start to think that's going to get compromised over the next couple of years. And also say we do have a lot of folks who are capable of international commerce, even in a plague, somewhat protecting themselves, somewhat using electronic you know, means to communicate and get things done. So to me, it depends on the uh, industry, if you will see some industries really being able to sail right along, container ships, the muscle part of the economy, I worry about that more.
1: Let's switch our focus a bit. We've covered a lot of science, and we've made a lot of predictions around what could happen, how this could unfold from a public health standpoint. But let's talk about uh, some societal challenges that we face. And I want to remind our listeners that none of this is meant to be judgmental from a political standpoint. We're just trying to understand the facts. So we have a lot of people in the society that don't want to take vaccines and, and that are refusing to take vaccines. What kind of consequences should they suffer, if you will, by not taking a vaccine, by being unwilling to take a vaccine? Should they be permitted to show up at the workplace and mix with the majority of their peers that are vaccinated? What about school children where they're not vaccinated They're not vaccinated just because their parents have chosen not to get them vaccinated. Should they be required to sit out that critical developmental experience? How do you tackle those issues?
0: So morally, I think we've tried to persuade people to take vaccines. We even tried to incentivize them, right? Free beer, free restaurant meals, lottery, college tuition. And now we've got a lot of hardcore resistance. And I think the answer is mandates. Do I mean the vaccine police coming to your house, holding you down, putting the jab in your arm? No. But it does mean if you don't vaccinate, you're going to be restricted as to where you can go, where you can work, what you can do to entertain yourself, where you can travel. Just to put it simply, if I ran a cruise ship and I would like my business to be going, you're not coming on my boat as a worker or a vacationer unless you're vaccinated. I got to retain public confidence that this place isn't gonna make you sick. And uh, the only way I can do that is by a blanket vaccination rule. People have said to me, what about kids? Can they go on the cruise? I'd probably say no, (laughs) not right now. I think we'll see kids vaccinated probably by January down to age five, and then we can sort of loosen that up. But morally, a good citizen should be looking out to protect the vulnerable, immunocompromised, very old cancer transplants and kids, protect them by getting vaccinated. It is harder to transmit, not impossible, but harder if you're vaccinated. Keep the hospitals from getting overwhelmed. Anybody who doesn't know what it means to be a responsible citizen just has to look at what happened in New Orleans when they had Ida on top of COVID. They they couldn't even move people out of the hospital to
1: get them out of harm's way because the other hospitals were full of COVID patients. So are we doing enough to get our children vaccinated quickly enough? I have a 13-year-old who was 12 when she got vaccinated, and we have lots of friends that have 10 and 11-year-olds that are very frustrated that those kids are not vaccinated. I know you have to draw the line someplace, but why can't we, in a rolling fashion, provide the vaccine to increasingly younger children on a more rapid basis. Because what I can tell you is that I don't know a child, and I know a lot of them, that are not having or have not had at some point serious issues of either depression or anxiety as a result of this.
0: You know, Tony, I'm gonna accept that argument because I do think we're underplaying the damage done by closing schools, even to some extent by requiring masking, which I don't think is usually burdensome, but interferes with social interaction. I live in Ridgefield, Connecticut. I was talking the other day with a teacher who runs the uh, orchestra and band. He's not gonna be able to run orchestra and band at the high school until we get a better handle on COVID. You know, you have to take your mask off to play the clarinet. Uh, it's just not gonna happen. Uh, I'm very familiar with trying to run sports events. I'm on the NCAA COVID committee. You have to lock people up for weeks to make this happen. And it's tough on the athletes. The pros are seeing the same thing too. So there are psychosocial, mental health consequences that are big, very big. And as you said, educational development is hindered as you lose time because maybe your school gets quarantined or closed or certain activities are just can't be done. So I I favor going year by year, collect the data on the 11-year-olds, put them in, collect the data on the 10-year-olds, put them in. Um, I think that is a reasonable strategy to go with. Interestingly enough, the problem is the younger you go, the fewer kids have been exposed to the vaccine. We're trying to recruit them now. But there are some 10- and 11-year-olds, and I'll tell you one group that's out there, you'll like this. It's parents who go off to the pediatrician and say, my kid's 11, would you vaccinate them? And there are a lot of parents doing it. I hear about it. And what we've got to do is sometimes in the science end called, forget about a trial, just collect real world evidence. Just monitor some subgroup of these folks. Tell them you're going to watch them. Don't penalize them for going outside the recommendation. By the way, for approved products like Pfizer is now a licensed product, doctor could prescribe that tomorrow for an 11 year old legally. You don't have the-
1: uh, Is that right? Because the the CDC has said that you can't use it for an off use purpose. Correct. uh, And- It's their, as we like to say, recommendation, but they
0: don't practice medicine. You'd be at risk if something went wrong and then people would say that's, you didn't follow the recommendation, we'll haul you to court because they had a bad outcome, but I don't see any bad outcomes. I'm a pediatrician. It's an 11-year-old kid. Probably ready to take that risk to protect that kid. Um, So you get a lot of leeway, by the way, for those listening who don't know. I'm going to say, making up a number here, 65% of drugs used in kids have never been studied in randomized trials in kids. They're always extensions from adults. In other words, it's an off-label. They just run the Whatever it is, sleeping pill, anti-anxiety med, nobody waits around and says, let's run another five-year trial on the kids who have anxiety at age 12. If it works on 14-year-olds and it's licensed, let's go.
1: So I'm going to stop us here because we're running out of time and provide three takeaways for the listeners, as I always do. And I'm going to give you the last word Art, after I do that and ask you to to say, what what, what is the most important thing that I haven't asked you? Number one is due to the vaccines and due to the very gradual increasing vaccination rate here domestically, which will go up in certain incremental bounds, if you will, when we get those kids groups approved, the U.S. is going to be, unless we come up against a very rare mutation that really messes up our outlook, we're going to be significantly better off in three months and six months and in 12 months than we are today. This is probably domestically the the last major gasp for this public health crisis. And we're probably going to be back in a situation, for those of us that have had the three shots, where we can live the way we used to live domestically, at least prior to the crisis, by the end of the year, I would think. That's number one. Number two is that the vaccine mandates are critical. And it's going to take an increasing period of time for people to get comfortable with them. But ultimately, You're going to have enough people that are vaccinated that they're going to be loud enough to demand that mandates occur or they won't participate in whether it be sending their kids to school or whether it be showing up at work, et cetera, that eventually the mandates are probably going to win and become commonplace. And they're going to be very important in the first takeaway, I think, which is getting enough vaccinations domestically to get back to normal. But the third takeaway is that it's going to take a much longer period of time to get the vaccines broadly enough distributed internationally to be able to provide many areas of the world with the same privileges that I just described that we'll have soon. And that means that that the, the bug is gonna be endemic globally for a very long time. And it means that as investors and as students of the global economy and the supply chain situation, we have to be very serious and thoughtful around how we invest and which companies are really able to appreciate these concerns, provision appropriately, create the type of backstock. and And that's something that we're going to be doing at Wilmington Trust increasingly because we see this as, notwithstanding the very rosy outlook for our domestic lives, we see this as a very uh, long-term economic event. So with that, what's the one thing that you'd like to say that we didn't ask you about for our audience today?
0: Okay, I'll accept those highlights enthusiastically, except the first one, I'm gonna say next spring for the third shot rollout and impact. I don't think we'll get it by the end of the year. That's fast. We're already into September, gotta vaccinate a lot of folks with the third shot and pick up the uh, recalcitrant. So there I might quibble. One thing you didn't ask and one thing to think about that's fun. You know, there are 33 vaccines in stage three or phase three trials. There may be some better ones out there that can do it in one shot, don't need as much refrigeration, don't need uh, uh, as much handling, if you will, to get them done. Some of them may even be inhalable, gets past a lot of the phobia that people have sometimes about needles. Are we going to give up on the rest of them or is there a possibility that we can still try some of these vaccines, maybe in some of those other countries that don't have any, and advance vaccine uh effectiveness more. Moderna, Pfizer, Janssen, Kudos, they move fast, they work, great efficacy, pretty good safety, but they're not perfect. Maybe there's some stuff out there that's better.
1: Well, it's interesting because there's obviously not going to be anyone to give those vaccines to here domestically. Everyone will either have been vaccinated or won't want the vaccine. And so at that point, these companies that have spent the resources to develop those vaccines it's going to be tough to find the path to understand how they're going to be economically motivated to do those things that you just described. The, market the, may the
0: need a little kick, whether it's the Gates Foundation or the Japanese underwriting. Their, I don't know. But it would be sad if we got stuck with the first-in-class vaccines thinking they're wonderful and they're warp speed and they did all this you know, good. But you know what? There were even better ones, and we never got to them. <laughs>
1: Thank you so much, Art, for joining us today. And thanks to our listeners for joining. You can keep up with Dr. Kaplan on Twitter at Arthur Kaplan for his thoughts on healthcare and bioethics and his day-to-day comments on headline stories. I encourage you all to visit WilmingtonTrust.com for a roundup of our investment and planning ideas. You can subscribe to Capital Considerations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast channel to ensure you get updates on future episodes. Thank you again for listening.
2: This podcast is for information purposes only and is not intended as an offer or solicitation for the sale of any financial product or service or recommendation or determination that any investment strategy is suitable for a specific investor. Investors should seek financial advice regarding the suitability of any investment strategy based on the investor's objectives, financial situation, and particular needs. The information on Wilmington Trust's capital considerations with Tony Roth has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy and completeness are not guaranteed. The opinions, estimates, and projections constitute the judgment of Wilmington Trust as of the date of this podcast and are subject to change without notice. Wilmington Trust is not authorized to and does not provide legal or tax advice. Our advice and recommendations provided to you is illustrative only and subject to the opinions and advice of your own attorney, tax advisor, or other professional advisor. Diversification does not ensure a profit or guarantee against a loss. There is no assurance that any investment strategy will be successful. Past performance cannot guarantee future results. Investing involves a risk and you may incur a profit or a loss. Any reference to company names mentioned in the podcast should not be constructed as investment advice or investment recommendations of those companies. Facts and views presented in this report have not been reviewed by and may not reflect information known to professionals in other business areas of Wilmington Trust or MNT Bank and may provide to seek to provide financial services to entities referred to in this report. MNT Bank and Wilmington Trust have established information barriers between their various business groups. As a result, MNT Bank and Wilmington Trust do not disclose certain client relationships or compensation received from such entities in their reports. Investment products are not insured by the FDIC or any other governmental agency, are not deposits of or other obligations of or guaranteed by Wilmington Trust, MNT Bank, or any other bank or entity, and are subject to risk, including a possible loss of the principal amount invested. Wilmington Trust is a registered service mark used in connection with various fiduciary and non-fiduciary services offered by certain subsidiaries of MNT Bank Corporation, including, but not limited to, Manufacturers and Traders Trust Company, MNT Bank, Wilmington Trust Company, WTC, operating in Delaware only, Wilmington Trust NA, WTNA. Wilmington Trust Investment Advisors, Inc., WTIA, Wilmington Funds Management Corporation, WFMC, and Wilmington Trust Investment Management, LLC, WTIM. Such services include trustee, custodial agency, investment management, and other services. International corporate and institutional services are offered through m Bank Corporation's international subsidiaries. Loans, credit cards, retail, and business deposits, and other business and personal banking services and products are offered by m and Bank member FDIC. 2021 m Bank Corporation and its subsidiaries, all rights reserved. Private market investments are only available to investors that meet the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission's definitions of qualified purchaser and accredited investor.